0: You're listening to a History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the University College Dublin School of History. For more information, go to historyhub.ie. In this episode, a paper recorded at Commemoration and Conflict in Ireland, 1920-1922. to This conference took place in Queen's University, Belfast, on the 12th of June, 2017. The conference was organised as part of the Arts and Humanities Research Council-funded project Commemorating Partition and Civil Wars in Ireland. 2020-2023, to 2023, in conjunction with the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics and the Institute of Irish Studies at Queen's University, Belfast. Commemorating Partition and Civil Wars in Ireland, 2020-2023, is a project run by Dr. Marie Coleman and Dr. Dominic Bryan that examines approaches to the upcoming centenary of the Partition of Ireland. All papers at the conference were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media and are now publicly available on History Hub. This episode features a paper by Dr. Anne Dolan from Trinity College, Dublin. The paper, Divisions After the Irish Civil War, was introduced by Dr. Marie Coleman.
1: Our second speaker then is Dr. Anne Dolan from Trinity, um, who's, I suppose, who's, who'll be in great demand when we get to uh, commemorating the Irish Civil War because she has conveniently written a book on commemorating the Irish Civil War. Um, Anne is uh, is based in uh, in Trinity where she's an Associate Professor of Modern Irish History and really has... has taken on a lot of the themes from this book, which uh, which has been published a number of years ago, now to look in even more detail at the nature and the legacy of the Irish Civil War, and then going into, really into depth about the nature of violence and killing during the revolutionary period, uh, and and that's that's very much where her research is uh, at the moment. I want to start on a back road, a back road in a small place in 1928. I want to start with a row with a row about turf missing. Maybe stolen, taken, turf. I want to start with insults thrown with a war of words that ended up in a Cavan circuit court, where Philip Smith was ordered to pay £10 damages for calling Lucy Galligan's virtue into disrepute. Whether Lucy Galligan was as chaste or faithful as Philip Smith thought she ought to have been, we may never know or need to care. But in the course of unpicking the case, the court heard some of what passed for insults in that small place in Cavan in 1928. Smith said harsh words for Lucy Galligan's children, worse about a boy she'd taken in from the county home. But what he said of her husband is why I trapes all of this out here today. As far as Smith saw it, Galligan's husband, as he put it, ought to be shot for thatching Sarahan's roof. He needed no elaboration or explanation for this to hit home. Lucy Galligan, no less than all the busybodies, no doubt, at the back of the court, knew exactly what he meant by that. The Sarahans were James and his wife Mary Ann, and both were murdered under the same thatched roof five years before. In December 1923, more than six months after the end of the Civil War, two men forced their way in and murdered husband and wife. At the time, the newspapers called their deaths the most atrocious murder ever committed in this country, which was quite a claim given the share of violence the newspapers had described in the months and years just gone before. Admittedly, Cavan had not known the kinds of violence other counties knew. And maybe murder of any kind was shocking, when for close on seven months now, what looked like war was supposed to have given way to what passed for peace. Maybe that alone was enough to prompt such headlines. But maybe it was because the Sarahans' seven-month-old daughter was found, as one newspaper put it, sleeping with its little nightdress saturated in her mother's blood. Maybe it was just the awful vividness of such a stain on such a little dress. Maybe it merited most atrocious because mary Ann sarahan was shot in the face because she was over four months pregnant, carrying a son as her post mortem found out. Maybe it was just because the idea of men coming to the door in the darkness, forcing their way in, was all supposed to be done and gone by the end of 1923. Wasn't all that finished? Hadn't that at least gone by now? The same newspapers that called this atrocious were also quick, though, to say the crime has no political significance. And maybe it hadn't in the usual obvious sense. The Sarahans died because of land, because of eight acres, eight acres, two cattle, and four pigs. There had been trouble between the Sarahans and the Brydie's families fell out, stones were thrown into Sarahans' meadow. There were accusations and Sarahan made charges of assault. The day before his death he gave evidence in court, earning Brydie two months of hard labour in jail. Sarahan died knowing his evidence and that jail sentence cost him and his wife their lives. His killers told him so just before he died. Beside Mary Ann Sarahan's body, police found an old revolver of what they called bulldog pattern and of British make. Briody, described by the newspapers as a well-known gale, as a good gale, may well have known the right people with an old revolver at the bitter end of 1923 to carry out such a task. At least that is what those rather knowing references to being a good gale seemed to imply. No one would buy hay or oats from the farm the following year, Sarahan's brother preferred to face court in 1925 rather than deal with his dead brother's debts, too afraid to tend the farm or to use what little money Sarahan had left. Nearly five years after these murders, the charge of thatching their roof was as bad as slut or whore or whatever aspersion Philip Smith could think to cast on a married woman's virtue during a squabble on the side of the road. It was still part of the winning and the losing of a small local row, still part of the cruel banter of the back roads that said Cavan had no intention of burying its hatreds with its dead. This is just a small example, and it wasn't hard to find. And while it is not, as the newspapers said, about politics, about war or revolution, about rebellion or civil war, as we've maybe usually defined them, it is not untouched or unshaped by them either. What brought a big British bulldog revolver to the end of Cavan in December 1923? What made and shaped the men who now knew how to use it? who now knew how to kill in that way and who still thought killing like that was the way to settle old scores months after civil war was done. I'm not suggesting that we craft a history or even a commemoration of civil war that dredges up every fought over field, every overwrought local passion that loses itself in the hatreds of small places where slights and sins are known seed, breed and generation. Don't worry, Homer's ghost is not whispering here as he did to Patrick Kavanaugh. I only want to muddy the waters, not craft an Iliad From such a local row. If nothing else, the Sarahans and their killers show up something of our undue neat and tidiness when it comes to civil war. They show how readily we settle for obvious subjects and chronologies, how quickly we've been to accept where one war ends and another begins because a traditional or dominant political narrative has always said it was so. The Sarahans and their killers did not keep time to our rather straightforward tune. Dividing the period up, rebellion, war of independence, civil war, never mind that this is all a deeply 26-county type of division at that, or that any and all of these terms or titles are contested yet, makes less and less sense as we begin to ask different types of questions of the records and of the violence we might find there. For example, Sergeant Thomas McGraw was about eight months a soldier. He joined the National Army, took the pro-treaty side, home on leave in Tipperary in March 1923... He was taken one night and found dead next morning on the side of the road. The men who killed him first got him a priest, a priest to pray with him, to give him the sacraments, to ready him for something of a proper death. The men who showed him this kindness then shot him five times, three times in the head. A label pinned to his coat said he knew he went to his death, labelled as a spy, or that the men who killed him were called upon to turn his lifeless body over and to pin it to his chest. The pages later found in an abandoned house nearby, those several practised attempts left on the ground, of those three letters, S, P and Y, say something of just what that label took to write. The labours of an unpractised hand, perhaps, the mistakes of an unsteady hand, the proof of a worried and and an unsettled mind that took all those many times just to get such a short word right. The marriage certificate in McGrath's pocket said he had a wife of just two months, that someone cared enough about him to sew a religious medal into the collar of his coat. And all of it means we cannot simply divide one conflict from another as though night from day. March 1923 might well have been, if you look at the type of violence, March 1921 or March 1922. While the events of Ballyseedie, while the executions of the Civil War are held to be clear proofs of the type of violence that seems to mark out civil wars, and yes, over 30 executions in January 1923 alone is certainly worthy of remark. There remains a quality to, viol- to the violence described above, whether Sarahan or McGrath, that reaches right across the period, that mocks the easy periodisation we seem keen for convenience sake to settle for. Before 1919 and after 1923, the letters, they're the records, sorry, let us see how violence works, what it asks of those who fight, of those who watch, of those who pass quietly by whatever the year, whatever we call the war. And the more we ask of the records, the more the distinctions seem to blur. Irishmen killed Irish men and women right through and beyond it all. The violence reveals instead many civil wars, civil wars that bleed beyond the margins we've largely drawn, just so we can maybe set out our wars apart and classify them all neat and tidily away. For those who fled and those who were fled from... There was none of the clarity about where one war ended and another began, however much truce and treaty and the like draw grand lines in the sand. In recent years, our historiography, or some of it anyway, has fixated on particular acts of violence and particular events, and I'm as guilty of this as others. And while there is considerable value in what such close work reveals, a narrow means sometimes takes us to a narrow end. Take the now rather relentless pursuit of motivations for the killing of 10 people in Dunmanway over two nights in April 1922. Well, we certainly need to understand what caused, preceded and followed those two nights of violence. We also have to listen to police reports from the same place, from the towns around that continued to come in and were poured over two years on. In April 1924, for instance, it was reported that there was, as the report said, an epidemic of cattle and sheep stealing near Bandon and Clonakilty. that this was a renewal of it but with much greater intensity this time, that in nearly all the cases, as the report said, the victims are said to be Protestant farmers. The report put it down, as it said, to ex-irregulars determined to loot in order to compensate themselves for their activities against the government. But did those looted from see it quite as plainly as that? Those two nights in April 1922 might have started something, interrupted something, but when did Dunmanway's abandon's own kinds of wars ever really end? While we may be glad of the rest by the time the centenary bandwagon heaves to a stop somewhere about may twenty twenty three, even if it makes it that far, commemoration's longing for clarity and what might be by then our own desperation to work on something, anything else, almost behoves us to listen to that period that follows on from Civil War all the more. How long did the divisions last? What forms did they take and do we choose to recognise sorry, what form did they take and do we choose to recognise looking back? How did they continue to express themselves? How did they cling on so that another next generation knew exactly which old sore to prod so that prodding hurt? Who decided when and if division got to stop? So in a way, my squabble on the back roads of Cavan comes to matter, maybe as much as civil war itself, because we can begin to gauge something of how all that period did or did not thrive in that one small place. We can begin to see the tangle of it all, how all the politics and the violence of those revolutionary years meshed with and became knitted into hatreds that may well have long predated them, hatreds and slights that then shaped them, that added who you voted for, which side you willingly or unwillingly took, who you helped, befriended or turned your back on, to your list of old unforgiven sins, that just became another means to hold you to the same old account. Of course, this period gave plenty of cause for new divisions and divides, But we would be foolish, I think, to pass up on the rich tapestries of spite that patch our landscape both after, during and before. How division hangs on says something of its depth, something of what it started as, what it once was, tells us at least how people chose to fathom the nature of it all. If we slip too readily into a world split plainly pro and anti-treatyite, we're left with only a neat and tidy understanding of this divide. We make something drab and lesser, of what might be much more challenging and interesting terrain. If we think of the French wars of religion, some of the most influential scholarship on the nature of violence has come from the intense scrutiny of how violence started, operated and stopped. But little or no attention dwells, though, on the periods in between, on those times when those same groups with such deep divides could rub along cheek by jowl, could put themselves back together enough to get by. And in some ways, that is what I want to get at here, because I think it might shed some light on the nature of the divisions themselves and ask questions of how deeply they actually went. The Saruhans death deaths, partly because of all their brutal detail, give us a glimpse of what might have been as much as what was, or what there might have been much more of rather than what was. What is most striking about the years that followed civil war is how relatively quickly law and order was re-established and how relatively few sorrows there were. Do we find that instead of being ruled and ruined by our divisions, we actually dealt with them relatively well? That given the conditions, there could have been more deaths, more spite, more sectarianism, more avarice, more greed. Police reports certainly reflect the hunger for land, the sense that violence was to be feared from all sorts of sources. But it's also clear from those same reports by late 24 and into 1925 but most of what was feared never actually came to much fruition. Our massacres are measured in remarkably small numbers and we probably shouldn't lose sight of that. If we follow on from Bill Kazan's choice of the Finnish Civil War as an appropriate contemporary comparator, a war with approximately 36,000 dead in just less than six months compared to Ireland's maybe fifteen, maybe 2,000 dead, we can also see just how dramatic the differences continued to be after both civil wars ends. According to Marty Lacey, the 1920s and 30s were the most violent in Finnish history, if measured by the rates of homicide, Uh, with homicide rates almost double in the 1920s what they had been in Finland before the First World War. While all sorts of factors contributed to the spike of homicides in Finland between the wars, a significant contributor, as he writes, was the radical increase in handgun ownership caused by the Civil War, the deficit of local policing, and the failure to introduce adequate uh, gun control laws in Finland until the early 1930s. In the Irish Free State, by contrast, homicide rates went into a significantly sharp decline. Annual reports of the Registered General counted 1,052 in 1921, 470 in 1922, 328 in 1923, 79 in 1924, 24 by 1925... 16 by 1932, five of which were cases of infanticide. And again, you can take issue with the the manner and the way in which they recorded those figures, but they give you a general sense. It may well be a very extreme measure, but it is one we should uh, (laughs) dwell on when tempted to give in to maybe our Angela's Ashes instincts that worse than the ordinary miserable civil war is the miserable Irish civil war. It's a measure, as I said, however extreme that I think we should bear in mind. Less extreme tests come quite readily to hand from other places. I took these quite randomly. Take the Kerry People newspaper, and I took a random edition in August 1922. The front page shows how dominant, certainly, the news of civil war was. Articles on the latest shootings, troops occupying Rathmore, a dramatic account of, as they put it, the battle in Tralee. But on the same front page, there was just as prominent an account of, as they put it, a record pig fair in Tralee, and the dastardly doings of a swan who had attacked, as they put it, an inoffensive duck <laughs> and had now murdered a dog, holding it under the water until it drowned. Big article, it's got plenty covered. <laughs> Readers read of The Grip of Iron, The Demon, The Night Raiders, all now in their midst in Kerry. But these were all films in the picture Drome theater uh, Cinema in Tralee. Nothing more sinister than that. News of Michael Collins's death came in great detail on page 3, But it was there side by side with the Town and County Advance Company Limited on page two, offering loans without security or delay, with money sent with great discretion through the post. Other similar searches in the year after Civil War shows embers and remnants certainly of it there across the newspapers. But the same persistence, even dominance of ordinary effusive lived life comes through even all the more. A letter to the editor of the Irish Independent, for example, argued in January 1924 that wouldn't it be grand, as they put it now, to let out the last of those internees. But cigarette smoking and dancing seemed to worry another correspondent far more than the internees or the possibility of a public safety bill. The Bank of Ireland promised handsome dividends, while a company in Leeds offered readers, the more uh, more impecunious readers, rather, a shilling, a tooth for their old false teeth. Seven months after the Civil War, the Theatre Royal in Dublin in the same issue promised its patrons a whirl of girls. None of this is meant to play down the serious nature of the Civil War or to be callous about the lives it took or the more it may have ruined in its many other ways. But it is instead to question how all-consuming we see it to be both at the time and since. To question the nature of the division and, or divisions it caused by bringing back some of the clutter of the lives that went on relentlessly around it and through it and beyond. What I think I'm trying to get at, in a rather roundabout way, is who are we listening to when it comes to understanding how deep and how pervasive the divides were and continued to be. Think of where we seek out and find our civil war, where we go to understand its legacy, the places where we test the depth of its divide, and it's usually to those who took the most central parts in it. Whether it's Ernie O'Malley or Richard Mulcahy, Todd Andrews or Kevin O'Higgins or any of the obvious rest, whether it's compensation claims or military service pension applications, all by their nature had, for want of a more polite way of putting it, a lot of skin in the game, whether at the time or in those later contests for notoriety and reputation, whether in those more desperate struggles for a few bob to keep body and soul alive. It may be facetious to say it, but if we go to Ernie O'Malley's books and papers and ask how bad and how deep was the Civil War divide, he's quite likely to tell us precisely what we expect to hear. And again, it does depend on the questions we're asking. And in fairness to him, he tells us a hell of a lot more than that, and very quite complicated things at like that. But as I said, it's about what we choose to, to look for. Similarly, justice reports to Cabinet say much of the fears that gripped the States through the early 1920s but they also underline, just as I said earlier, how unfounded maybe some of those fears eventually turned out to be. However, if we go even briefly to some of the less obvious accounts of civil war and the post-civil war free state, is there something more variable there to get? V.S. Pritchard came as a poorly paid journalist too, as he put it, to Ireland, as he said, to observe a revolution, to explain to his readers the nature of life lived through a civil war. Finding Dublin dull, as he put it, in early 1923... He followed the war south and went to Cork. And while the sounds of shots told him danger maybe wasn't far away, it didn't stop him going every night to the theatre, where, as he put it, Doran's touring company were playing a different Shakespeare tragedy to packed houses every night. His first sights of Macbeth and Hamlet and Othello were shared with the commercial travellers who stayed with him in the same hotel. He remembered Shakespeare in Kerry voices shortening the road back to his bed. He recounts a vivid mix of life, the adjustments made in some of the big houses, the world of a former auxiliary who stayed and married a local woman who'd made a life in the middle of Tipperary in civil war. You picnicked, he writes, in the Dublin mountains, but you passed the rough wooden cross as it was then that marked the place where Lamas was killed. You walked Waterloo Road on a sunny evening, only, as he put it, to collide with a young man who, hurrying with his revolver, said sorry as he ran away. Pritchard doesn't hide, uh, or does nothing to hide, the man who killed himself, tormented by the beating he received during a raid uh, in the Civil War. But he does nothing either to hide the fleas and the lice and the savage poverty as well. And sometimes it's it's the anger about the poverty is much more striking. Called back by his editor, his explanation for his departure should give us pause for thought. And he writes: By the end of 1923, Ireland, which had attracted the newspapers of the world since 1916, had ceased to be interesting. No one wanted to read about Ireland anymore. And so we left, because there was a coup to chase in Spain instead. In August 1923, the weekly Westminster Gazette published a piece called Impressions of Dublin by a young Graham Greene. And like Pritchard, he was struck most by the poverty, by the expensiveness of ordinary things, by the beggars, as he writes, as numerous as in a continental port. He noted some of the slogans he saw on Dublin's walls, up the IRA or the Republic lives, but in the next breath he remarked on just how little these mean now, that they were just the work of some silly flapper types. He summed up Ireland after civil war in his description of one young soldier as he writes a small boy of about 15 in the green uniform of the Free State, fast asleep on a bench in St Stephen's Green, his head resting on the shoulder of a still younger girl. But there was something far more damning in what he saw as the frightening paralysis of the place. And he says, it is like the most nightmarish of dreams, where one finds oneself in some ordinary and accustomed place. It was a constant fear at the heart that something terrible, unknown and unpreventable is about to happen. But for all that, it should be remembered that he was there on a walking tour, describing a holiday in Ireland in the summer of 1923 for the readers of the weekly Westminster Gazette. The travel writer H. B. Morton gave a much more favourable account for his readers in 1930. He came, as the title of his book put it, in search of Ireland, and he recounts a place desperately at ease with itself. Changing, improving, coming out, as he puts it, from the Celtic twilight into a blaze of day. You cannot go out to dinner in Dublin, he writes, without hearing some reminiscence, generally humorous, of the rebellion or the civil war, or some story, generally tragic, of the hated blackened hands. Morton certainly didn't find a place still tearing itself apart. While Morton might have been been shown all the best sides out, not least because of all the prospective tourists who might, uh, if you like, read his book, the same couldn't be said of Porrick Cullum's work, The Road Round Ireland, which he published in 1926. So soon after Civil War, it really questions the divisions I think we've come and have chosen to fixate upon. He describes the lives of farms and towns, the divisions between the lives lived on 200 acres and those lived hard on 12. He recounts the divides between generations, one wanting jazz records and shop-bought clothes, the other trying to fathom what was still changing and what had already changed. He marks out the divisions between those who want to stay and those who want to go. The girl, as he writes, waiting to leave with American dresses already in her wardrobe, with pictures of New York hanging on her wall. The children entranced, as he writes, as she says the wonderful name Texas, giddy on the thought of somewhere else. He traces the divide between the haves and the have-nots, between the women he saw in rural Kerry, as he put it, putting on their boots coming into the town so that they will be respectable looking at mass, respectful of their religion perhaps, but not prepared to give their betters the soot of sneering at their bare and dirty feet. He sets out the differences parish to parish. In Father Michael's parish he says, for instance, People are terrified of having a dance at their house and young men and women can meet only in the most furtive way. In the next parish, however, there is absolute freedom. Pro or anti-treaty be damned. The social, economic and cultural divisions were the ones that hit home for him. By 1926, he was able to write of the Civil War, as he put it, as the crisis that we are now well over. And maybe given the people he met, that made sense. His description of a Mr. James Covey in a small place in the Midlands maybe explains why. Covey had a shop at the crossroads near the church. He sold boots and shirts and sides and whitewash brushes and the like. With a picture of an Atlantic liner on the wall, he was also the local agent for a shipping company. He was the first stop for those who wished to go. When Cullum asked asked, uh, about a political meeting in the parish and whether he would bring him along, when he requested Covey, uh, to, to let to bring him there covey apologized in a shambling quite shifty way and he said i can't take you to the meeting don't belong to that party now i've the post office from the government you know so what he once had of his old principles clearly had their price to save something of his blushes he asked Colum, would what they want leave us any better off because Covey, no doubt like many more, now measured out divisions in hard tax, in pounds, shillings and pence. In Covey's words, Colm found what he called the representative of the real conservative Ireland, that Ireland that is so profoundly sceptical of revolutionary movements and revolutionary ideas. And that sense of the Civil War being to blame for that type of conservatism is palpable in much of the historiography of the post-Civil War state. Although conservative is a relative term, In much of the analysis, it is not clear who calibrates or calibrated where radical begins and conservative ends. There is an acceptance that what passed for a political divide in Irish politics was simply an easy continuation of the Civil War, that there was not the kind of natural division between right and left common to the rest of Europe, that there was, because of the Civil War, a blind and arid persistence of the national question to the detriment of a genuinely left-wing outlook in the state." Of course the realities of independence, and an independence ushered in with blood on its hands, were always going to let the expectations down. The free state was by no means the only new state in post-war Europe to learn the hard way of that. Unlike many of the others, though, it did survive, and it had probably some of the most stable 1920s and 30s in Europe, and it avoided the excesses of political extremes when much of Europe began to march to the rhythms of a fascist or a communist jackboot. Stability was a valuable commodity in interwar Europe. Its values, value sorry, was not lost on Kevin O'Higgins when speaking two days after, after an election in Britain in October 1924. He pointed out to his audience in Oxford University that since becoming a member of the Irish government, he said, I have shaken hands with four English prime ministers and may well be meeting the fifth any time now. While he was hammering home that the Irish were capable of ruling themselves, the comparative stability of the free state is nonetheless clear. And there were far more unstable places beyond the British Isles. Fourteen parties won seats in Czechoslovakia's elections in 1920, 31 featured in the Polish result in 1926. Neither state existed by the end of 1939. Stabil- stability was a valuable commodity in interwar Europe, however much it seemed to look like stasis after 1945. But what we might see as the disappointment of independence, the conservatism caused by civil war, can hardly be otherwise when we look back at it through the 1950s, through the 1980s, when we look back maybe through the continued disappointments of the here and now. But what independence might have been or could have been or should have been if there was no ruinous device of civil war is more maybe a mantra of our own discontents, our own sense that at some point it all went wrong and not fixing it was someone else's fault. Voicing his disappointment with the prospect of uh, censorship in 1928, George Bernard Shaw paraphrased Mark Twain and complained, the average man is a coward. And so much of the disappointment with this period of Irish history, so much of what the centenaries will no doubt blame the Civil War for, seemed to echo the condescension of this same sentiment. And yet so much that is now perceived as conservatism in that new free state often had overwhelming popular support, even had advocates prepared to push for what seems even greater repressions. The voices that spoke up, say, for women's rights were largely ignored. The failure to raise the school-leaving age because the need for a child's labour was too pressing for too long. These and so many other examples suggest people were not always thwarted. They just were not prepared to do as we hoped they should have done. We might long to find radical might-have-beens in an Ireland that did not succumb to civil war but if electoral results are any measure, then independent Ireland showed little appetite for more than what it got. It may be the blunt historian in me, but it was what it was. The moral cowards, as Shaw might call them, as many more have and continue now to call them, made their own choices, took their own risks, chose which opportunities they wanted to escape as well as miss. It's too simple and straightforward, I think, to blame it on the civil war. The sense that the state lived in the shadow of its revolution, that its politics were defined by little more than a civil war divide, underestimates the intensity of bread-and-butter politics from the very outset. It is there to be found in the extent and the range of legislation passed, while the frequency with which land arose in the doll, as Terry Dooley has found out, is suggestive of a polity moving naturally and very ploddingly on. The election literature of all parties across the period show that pounds, shilling and pence mattered when it came to the ballot box. A Cumannagale supporter, as John Regan has recorded in his book, saw his party's defeat in 1932 in very plain terms. And he quotes, I met some hard-headed, wealthy, middle-aged, large familyed Mayo shopkeepers that I know in the train. Their enthusiasm and determination for the Fianna Fáil policy of high protection and development of the country's resources by strong measures was astounding. And the most curious thing was that they had no delusions about Dev's own personality and culpability in 1922. But what matters now is that he has the right policy, and we'll see it through and make it succeed. And this questions, I think, David Fitzpatrick's view, as he writes, that affiliation to De Valera's Fianna Fáil was primarily determined by the legacy of the Civil War, rather than by the appeal of specific policies. One party certainly presented itself as the men of no property, aimed to speed the wheels and speed the plough, even at the arrogance to promise to abolish unemployment in 1933. For the economist Kevin O'Rourke, as he writes, the claim that Irish party politics have been informed not by economic differences but rather by idiosyncratic quasi-tribal factors is not supported by the evidence. Of course the civil war mattered. It remained a handy register of abuse but we take too readily for granted that politics in the state was bound, as I think Fergus McGarry himself has written, to be disfigured by the hatreds, betrayals and disillusionment of the civil war. In the 1920s and 30s, military service pension applicants from both sides requested supporting references from old Civil War enemies. I think it seems to have taken maybe the historiography a little longer to get over the divide. We're still looking for the divisions, not necessarily what put, I think, the South back together
0: again. Thank you for listening to this History Hope podcast. To listen to many more podcasts, including podcasts from the Commemorating Partition and Civil Wars in Ireland project, go to historyhope.ie.